our, our opinion of what it will take is that, that we need this kind of wide range of expertise to kind of make space resources work, make space mining work. There are technical challenges and there are legal challenges and there's business structure challenges, but I don't think there's any one place where it's clear, like, you know, we fix this, we solve this particular problem and it all works. Like there isn't one technical challenge, there's many. It is not just technical challenges, it's also structural, like how do you finance a, a business mm -hmm. where there's no predecessor, as an example, right. well, we're like this other business, like this other mining firm, where they, but it's not, you know, it's, it's brand new stuff. There's a lot of opportunities for lots of different people. We are back with another episode of the Cold Star Project. I've been looking forward to this one for a while. This is Dr. Chris Dreyer of the Colorado School of Mines. And uh, we booked this, I think in November we had a chat. And, uh, yeah, it was a while ago. Man, this came up quick. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> the weeks go by fast. So Dr. Dreyer here, uh, he has a PhD in mechanical engineering. Uh, none of your fluffy foo-foo degrees there. This is real legit <laughs> mechanical engineering degree. Uh, and he is the associate director of engineering at and co-creator of the Center for Space Resources at the Colorado School of Mines. Um, the, the big reason why I was delighted to connect way back when was uh, asteroid mining is a personal thing for me, right? It's like a, a place yeah. I see myself eventually uh, in my crazy visions in my head. And so to see, oh my gosh, Colorado School of Mines and the Center for Space Resources have an online asteroid mining essentially training program, uh, it was astounding. I was like, wow, this is yet another real thing. Yeah. So. Well, let's, let's we we do, and we're doing asteroid mining work, uh, particularly with uh, TransAster and Joel Cell. Mm -hmm. But realize, you know, we, we call it space resources for a reason. It's mm. it's, it's asteroids, it's moon, the, right. the moon, it's Mars, it's um, mineral resources, but it's also about um, other ways we can use space and use resources of space, like manufacturing and microgravity. Uh, for instance, is a is a thing. So we take this kind of broad view of what are resources of space, um, and that frankly includes things we've been doing since the dawn of the space age, like mm -hmm. like solar power. It's a resource of space. We've, you know, we don't think of it that way, but it, we don't think of it as being the same as asteroid mining, but it does fit into kind of the spectrum of, mm -hmm. of what we consider and and teach. And um, but our focus is on the new things. You know, the use of minerals or and volatiles uh, to create uh, brand new capabilities in space. Well, very cool. I, I'm curious then, and I'm gonna change my question here then, how did you personally get involved with, with the space resources field then? Well, um, you know, from, a, I, I basically wanted to do something in space and space related from when I was young, before, before college and teenager. And um, I, I went and got a mechanical engineering degree and, and started working as an undergrad in, in labs at my undergraduate university, Drexel University in Philadelphia. They were doing some things with some NASA folks um, in studying combustion in space. Okay, so, so this is a long, long story. That's where, where it starts. Mm -hmm. And in a way you're using, in, in studies of combustion in space, you're using microgravity as a tool to better understand combustion. Mm -hmm. But you also also are studying kind of the, the uh, fire safety for uh, space stations and, and spacecraft. Um, that eventually led to my graduate work. Um, and there was 
then it was more work in, in microgravity combustion. Uh, so also an internship at uh, NASA Glenn along the way in, in their, in this, again, a microgravity combustion group. There was a group here at Mines kind of working in the similar field. Um, it's actually a NASA funded center for the commercialization of combustion science on the space station. Um, and that brought me to Mines um, as a postdoc initially. Uh, then it kind of developed into a full-fledged uh, research professor with some, with some of my uh, own funded research as PI. And at the same time, around the same time I came here, there were other faculty at Mines working in exactly space resources and space mining. And one of the, the most uh, prominent ones was uh, a guy named Mike Duke, who um, came from, uh, who's, who'd come to Colorado to retire, but wanted to continue doing some research on the side. He, he was a, um, he's a geologist who worked at the Johnson Space Center uh, for, since the 70s. He had a long career there. He was at one time, in the, in the, sometime in the 70s, um, well, at one time he was the lunar curator, the lunar rocks that were brought back. Um, and he was involved with, um, as, a, as a young guy with uh, Apollo. So, and, and during the, the 70s and 80s and 90s, and, and even through the, the knots, he was uh, a prominent person in promoting the use of resources in space. And, and um, there was a number of other people who were kind of prominent during, during that time, but he, was, uh, he, was, he came to Mines to retire. He knew about School of Mines, and he basically uh, developed, helped us develop the field. And I began to kind of get involved with him and his research. And he, um, and, and that's kind of where I got more introduced directly into space resources. Again, my kind of graduate research had been in microgravity combustion studies, and there's a way in which that's also use of resources, but uh, microgravity being the one. But really at that time, kind of in 2005, began to move more and more towards the mineral resources, like mechanisms for excavating the lunar surface. Um, my other kind of background in in, in school and as a mechanical engineer was more of a thermal sciences background, which has also helped me in kind of transitioning into asteroid mining, where a fundamental issue with asteroid mining is you've got to heat the material to release volatiles. So, one of my mechanical thermal sciences background and fluid mechanics um, kind of have been used there. So it's just kind of been a, a continual progression um, uh, from, uh, from actually going long time, uh, long back. Uh, and um, the, it wound up being here long enough that we reached a point where we realized we were doing enough research in this area there's enough growing interest that we should start this graduate program. Um, and uh, things have kind of taken off from there, um, both for, for our program, number of students in it are just tremendous, and some new research projects are really um, uh, getting rolling here um, uh, really fast. Well, very cool. So, so how then exactly did you develop the 
the program? I mean, first of all, the, the whole curriculum for the course, how do you go about creating something that hasn't existed at all before? What do you use as a baseline, right? Yeah. Um, well, well, we, we use uh, the a couple different things we use. And, and one of them is, is there's terrestrial experience in how you, how you explore, how you define whether, where you have a resource and establish if your resource is uh, a reserve or, or uh, just a potential resource. Um, and there are some basic technologies you need to develop. There, in some places in space, the, we can kind of use some terrestrial experience to understand what technologies you might have, like excavation on a planetary surface isn't too different from excavation on Earth. Um, some of the minerals are similar, and so we can imagine processing them in similar ways, except we have to exclude certain things, like we don't have a lot of water available in most places, so we're not gonna do, um, on Earth we use water a lot for for separation and processing. Um, so we ha do have to conceive of new things. Um, so there's terrestrial practices that we're kind of by analogy saying, well, this is how we might apply it in space. There's other environments where we have to conceive of completely new things. Um, and in, in that sense, there's researchers who have been thinking about this for decades. You can go back, you can find mining, um, lunar mining concepts from the 50s. And um, there were a number of things that, that again, Mike Duke and, and his colleagues uh, had compiled and put together in some um, publications in the, the uh, 80s and 90s that really are great references. Um, the one you should look at, it's multi-volumed. Uh, there's five volumes of the SP-509 series. That's the NASA designation of the, of the particular series. It kind of summarizes the thoughts from the 70s, 80s, and early 90s. Um, so so there, there's, uh, people have been thinking about this for a long time, and one of our starting points is what those, what the thinking within those, those last couple of decades. Um, uh, then we're adding in some kind of other practices, um, there, there's particularly kind of a, a phrase or something that Mike Duke put together at one of our conferences. Um, so actually, the, the conference that we mentioned is uh, called the Space Resources Roundtable, that Mike founded, and then we've continued uh, um, since now, like in its, we're somewhere in the high teens and kind of number of times we've held it. And the Space, Space, space Resources Roundtable is a place that, that people thinking about how to use resources space would get together to talk about the field. Like, what do we need to develop? What are we, what are the barriers to making this happen? And so there's a lot of work people have done and that's kind of in, within the volumes of what's been, was presented at the round table over years. And one of the things Mike said in the very first round table was um, to develop a space resources, you would need, you know, you need to identify a resource, you need technologies to acquire the resource and make it into a product, and you need customers. And he also said, you know, customers are the most important. And it all has to be put together in a, into a plan, a cohesive plan. So we teach that way. We talk about the resources of what's known to be out there. We talk about potential technology that could be used to um, 
acquire and process it. As best I can kind of talk about what are the state-of-the-art examples in this. A lot comes from the work that NASA's been doing over many years in excavation, in uh, extraction of oxygen from regolith, um, and um, other kind of processes to produce methane for rocket propellant, for example. Um, and in terms of customers, talk about who are their potential customers. Um, one of the first customers should be transportation companies that want to that could refuel rockets in space um, and therefore get more out of the rockets. You might be able to have a, kind of a distributed lift scenario where where um, you refuel in Leo or maybe it's somewhere else in space and then that carries on your your vehicle further. Um, if you do this, you can put more mass on the rocket on the pad, uh, more payload mass mm -hmm. uh, because you you plan fuel. To, yeah. yeah, you plan to have less fuel than you would today because you plan it out that you're going to refuel at some point in space. And then there's other things like like a big a big area of um, use of space resources has been focused on um, Mars missions, you know, um, human the astronaut uh, exploration of Mars, where um, where you make your propellant make propellant on the surface of Mars for re perhaps re full return to Earth, but at least to get off the surface of Mars back into into orbit. And of course, that was was uh, kind of part of the plot of uh, the Martian. Mm -hmm. um, but um, the Andy Weir was actually reading about this that had been discussed for decades in NASA literature about exactly that. Well, NASA literature, as well as, as folks like Bob Zubrin, um, who talked about it, that concept in the, in the 90s. Um, but he too was kind of building it off of what others were talking about of use of resources. So, so like that's one clear customer, make propellant to, from Martian resources to move astronauts from the surface into orbit, minimum step. Then um, a couple years ago, uh, ULA uh, had proposed uh, some pricing uh, concepts for refueling um, uh, ULA upper stages in space and proposed you know, prices they'd be willing to purchase propellant at different locations in space. Um, the, the person who was really, really behind that was George Sowers. Uh, he was a vice president of ULA at the time. He's now a uh, faculty member in our space resources program. Um, teaches about this kind of propellant, particularly in systems engineering as well. Uh, teaches a class in systems engineering for um, that's focused on space resources. Uh, so we we, we, we kind of use a lot of the, the history of what people have done, developed, and thought about of how this would happen as our basis of teaching the field. And um, we anticipate that things are gonna be changing a lot in the next couple of years. We'll be, we'll be continually updating and talking about the you know, new, new events that occur with um, you know, some of the things coming up with uh, where NASA is funding development of, of resource extraction and processing that could be new examples of the state of the art mm -hmm. of space resources.
Right, and I, I go right back to Joel Cercel and the, the Mini B and testing that right, out. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. Like that's that's his his concepts are I think the most complete and workable solutions for asteroid mining that we've we've ever seen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, in my paltry point of view, I will agree with that. So how do you know when you've got enough critical mass for, for a center? Do, do you get funding from the school or private funding? Or, you know, I mean, you, had, you were saying you had been there long enough. You had this partnership with other instructors in that, and, and then something yeah. happens. Well, well, technically, our center has existed for, for a long time. Um, the Center for Space Resources is the direct um, successor to the original um, microgravity combustion center called CSACS. Um, and, um, and, and there have been space resources work within it for 20 years. Hmm. And it's been the Center for Space Resources for 10, yeah, about 10. And, um, you know, the, the way centers work here at the School of Mines is, is with the permission of the administration, a group of faculty say there's there's kind of a center of mass for a particular research topic, um, and they 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 might go after a particular uh, base funding. The CSACS was actually funded by NASA under uh, um, a uh, microgravity commercialization um, award that that lasted five years or something like that. And um, the, you know, the, the goal there was actually to commercialize use of the space station. And they funded several centers around the country. We were one. And, um, you know, so that got things rolling. There's a base of funding. You submit new grants, you get new funding, you bring it through the center. Um, and the, the practices here is that the, there's a uh, small amount of uh, indirect costs that come back to the, the center for, you know, um, to, to promote the center itself, to, to further kind of um, do pay for some administrative costs within the center and, um, and seek out and win new funding to keep, keep the, keep uh, funding continually coming in. Right, right. So okay. yeah, a lot's been based on on NASA grants to be a, to, as the main source. Uh, a lot of those are are in collaboration with companies such as TransAstra. There's also a couple other um, companies we're working with, um, um, Maxar, Oxion, um, are coming up right now, uh, and a couple of small businesses routinely with SBIRs um, um, and STTRs. Okay, so that gives a pretty clear picture. Hey, this is Jason Canigan, the host of the Cold Star Project and the founder of Cold Star Technologies. I've decided to do something new. I've started doing daily update videos on who I met and what I learned the previous day in the space field. And it's a great sort of follow me thing. You can learn what I learn. I'm meeting a heck of a lot of people and learning a lot of things really fast. And the space field is really disparate. There are tons of nooks and crannies to go into and explore from legal, operational, you know, regulatory, compliance and gosh the end customer who would have thought about that right so you can sign up for this if you go to coldstartech.com slash msb that's short for make space boring the mission we're on then you can sign up and in your email you will get a daily notification that the new video has been posted 
I'm also thinking about doing some branded mini courses and summarizing papers as uh, I'm able to. So those will be some goodies that are in there as well. So if you're interested in that, go to coldstartech.com MSB and join us on the mission to make space boring. Now back to the interview. So you decided to run this course uh, uh, online instead of in class, in person. How did that decision come about? What were the reasons for it? Yeah, um, <clears throat> well, we, we did, when we started, we thought we would have, um, you know, nutritional class in a classroom, but we, we, we thought we were doing that. Then, but we realized there were a couple people, we, we wanted the opportunity that people at, at companies particularly could also join our class, but do it remotely. Um, so the, so that, that's where um, Angel, the Dr. Angel Abu Madrid and I started saying, this should be, do a classroom with some people remote. We, the school has actually made a big push to have a bigger online presence and was offering a lot of new things online. So they, they'd founded a group called the Trefney Center to uh, design and promote online course, courses at the School of Vines. And when consulting with them, they pointed out something that immediately I completely agreed with, and because I've been doing some teaching over the years, um, uh, but my main duties have been research. Um, and that, that is that when you have a classroom of people and you have some people online, you really teach to one group or the other. Hmm. So one of the groups is getting your actual instruction and the other group is getting some inferior version of your instruction. And um, that if we really want to kind of reach out beyond the university, we should go fully online. So um, from the beginning, we kind of bought into that idea immediately. It seemed really clear to me. Um, and so from the beginning, we were offering it only uh, in video conference, kind of the way we're doing this right mm -hmm. now and using Zoom um, and, and using our, also our online tools, uh, Canvas, to manage the course. Um, and uh, the first two semesters were uh, um, essentially very traditional, other than all the, the lectures were in video conference. And we had people all, all over, some people like local, but you know, in, you know they would have had to do a 40 minute drive to get to campus. So now they, they cut um, a pretty, uh, some commute out of their day, but also people in other parts of the country. And um, the, we then in um, fall of 2018 uh, went to the full online version where we officially announced the, the full course, the program. By full online, it has some other aspects. Instead of 16-week semesters, there's eight-week semesters. That, that too is kind of a recommendation from the Trefney Center, and, and it's borne out to be true. Um, it is a full 16-week course, but compressed into eight weeks. So it's a bit intense, um, but the idea there is in, in, for two months, a professional quite possibly could rearrange your schedules. It might take weekends and several nights during the week to do this course, but you've got, you know, it's just eight weeks. As opposed to 16 weeks, it can be kind of, it's a more significant um, 
much more difficult to rearrange your schedule to last mm. four months instead of two months. Um, it's also actually pretty intense for the instructor too, to um, have, have uh, need to turn around a significant amount of grading within mm -hmm. a short period of time instead of a couple weeks. So um, um, that kind of making it short and intense. And then there's more online content. Lectures are in pre-recorded videos. Um, we still do video conferencing to have mostly a discussion with students about kind of the question and answer period you normally would have in, in a lecture. Uh, we have guest lectures as well. Um, the field is so broad that there's really no one, there's just simply no individual that can reasonably claim to be an expert in everything relevant to space resources. You need, you need planetary science, you need uh, spacecraft systems, um, you need brand new stuff that you haven't seen in spacecraft before, like excavation and processing systems. And you also need a bit of like a business and economics savvy to understand who the customers are and what they'd be interested in. And also you need, need to understand the law and policy of, of space resources, like what, what is the law governing use of resources uh, and ownership of resources. Um, so we have a lot of guest lectures who, who I've arranged to sit in, provide a, a lecture and then sit in with the class to do question and answers uh, periods with, through video conferencing. So that's where we are today. We're currently doing the um, the fourth semester of fully online, the sixth time teaching this uh, fundamentals class total. Um, we have, um, uh, uh, I believe right now, uh, 84 students in the program at some position within their degree. Um, we're routinely having 20 to 30 students enter each semester so far. Um, we're um, expanding actually. We just um, started, we'll have a, a search for a new faculty member of the program hmm. who the, the plan is it's a geologist research seeking for, seeking to uh, be a tenure track professor in um, geology, presumably with a planetary science background, working in space resources, would be the goal. There's a few people we know of who kind of fit that description. Might be more that we're not really, can. we will see who applies. Um, and uh, that would kind of shore up one of our areas of adding planetary science, a formal planetary scientist to the program, in addition to kind of the three people in the program are all engineers. Mm. So, okay. Uh, so it's an iterative process, figuring this course and delivery out been a little different every time you're adding to it students learn a lot a lot more than just technical things they learn a bit about the space law and yeah. uh, and some design and and whatnot um, yeah. what, what technologies are being developed right now for uh, taking advantage of resources in space yeah so um, there are uh, there are kind of two to three areas of, of new technologies being worked on um, by various groups. Um, I would um, kind of classify them as extraction methods that would include excavation. Um, as a excavation generally is, is about the regular surfaces of the moon or Mars. It's kind of 
and using that, that resource. Then there's a couple different extraction methods. So once you have the raw material, there's a method to remove, you know, alter it and kind of extract something from it. Um, and then there's further processing after that raw materials um, uh, extraction step. So in, in some of the, uh, so thinking that kind of is a bit sequential in that kind of first area of excavation, um, there, there's different excavation robotics that have been worked on. Um, I would say there's been a, in one of the examples of the state of the art would be the ex particular excavator from the Kennedy Space Center and a group that called the Swamp Works uh, mm -hmm. developed this uh, bucket wheel excavator. Um, but there's also in that excavation step, there can be, you know, say for asteroid work, there's the, the trans-astro concept that uses intense sunlight to excavate while simultaneously doing the extraction step to produce, mm -hmm. to heat the material to produce water vapor from the hydrated minerals. Uh, sometimes some of the processes kind of separate those steps, but in the trans-astro concept, they're combined. You excavate and extract at the same time. I know that like at uh, Mission Contact, there's some work going on on, on extraction mm -hmm. concepts for uh, uh, Martian gypsum. Um, so there's deposits that are um, seen to, that they're like gypsum, but they're a hydrated mineral and they're working on a, um, a process that uses um, basically a pressure washer type of approach of using water to extract from that from the material to recycle the water to extract more. And you have to break it up while also extracting your uh, the water that would be within the mineral. And um, <clears throat> I'm working with TransAstro on uh, the technique that's mm -hmm. they've developed called optical mining. And um, that's by building a laboratory apparatus that is a test bed for it. We have a huge and intense uh, xenon arc lamp that uh, focuses light through a window into a vacuum chamber where it strikes a sample of asteroid simulants and we have that excavates and heats it and then volatiles that are produced which are primarily water captured on a liquid nitrogen cooled um, uh, cold trap. Uh, some other things going on there is work on um, the processing step um, on the Mars 2020 rover, there will be a demonstration um, of um, basically it's electrolysis of the CO2 atmosphere, which will split CO2 into carbon monoxide and oxygen. And this is one of the ways you could produce oxygen directly from the Martian atmosphere. And it'll be the, actually, a, a very likely, you know, it's still a couple well, it'll launch soon in a couple years before it's there or before it's operating. I don't know exactly when the turn on date will be, but it very likely will be the first extraterrestrial processing hmm. to occur where we intentionally are trying to convert something from, you know, its native natural state into a process state, which here would be oxygen. Um, just a demo that when in this case oxygen won't be used for anything but it'll at least take that technology and um make it or show you know, raise its technology readiness level to a nine that 
least that unit and that mm -hmm. size with that that it, those inputs we can define really if it's possible um, the there's also there's some new works getting started on water electrolysis um, uh, that uh, will be built for the moon um, I'm also involved in in uh, working with with uh, George Sowers on a concept we've developed called thermal mining uh, of the moon, which is a way to extract water volatiles, ices directly off the surface of the moon. A couple others working on similar concepts um, um, that uh, related methods to, not related, but other ways of, of extracting volatiles from the surface of the moon inside the those the at the poles where we have permanently shadowed regions mm -hmm. that capture volatiles. There's also work on on there and kind of those regions. Uh, then once we have extracted the, the water, before you might electrolyze it, you should clean it up. Um, mm -hmm. And there's work on on processing and cleaning the water through a, a an award Paragon um, hmm. has with. Okay. NASA. So actually NASA in the last couple of years has started funding a lot of things for a couple of different programs. Um, you know, there, there's been there's a number of opportunities to submit proposals in SBIR and STTR now in this area, in areas of space resources. There's a lot of, there's a fair amount of uh, things being funded in this area through uh, NIAC. That's where Joel uh, Cercel got started mm -hmm. with, um, with his concept. Um, there's early stage innovation awards at NASA that, that fund things in, in this area as well. There's um, uh, Next Step and Tipping Point Technology Awards that relate to space resources. So um, the last couple of years has seen NASA really increase the pace at which it's funding new technology development for space resources. Right. Agreed. I went through the NASA NIAC grant list for 2019 and uh, chased down everyone I could <laughs> to try and book them to be on this show. Right. <laughs> it worked out pretty well, actually. Uh, I'd say at least half of them were connectable and most of them said yes. So I could, I could find them, connect with them and get them to come on. So we'll be hearing more about that. You can't afford to be second best. You need to be first and that requires speed. Now, if you're thinking that growth is supposed to be slow and steady, frankly, the way I was taught back in the 90s in the operations management and business administration programs, you are too slow. We have to adapt. And in space, it's no different than anywhere else. People like to think they're special in space, and it is fun, all the stuff we get to work on, but business is business. The fundamentals nowadays are conservative growth is not good. You need to run as fast as you can and risk outstripping your supply lines, which means in our world, using up the capital that we've got. That's a risk. But there is no prize for second place. There certainly is no prize for third. If you want to scale operationally fast, come talk to us at Cold Star Tech. We are the process experts for scaling fast. Now back to the interview. Um, I actually have a question here that isn't on our sheet, uh, but it struck me. Okay, so we get a student, and I, I've talked to uh, a student in the program, and, you know, he loves it uh, privately. He, um, 
<laughs> any better. No. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, uh, I guess, who's the right person to be applying to get in? And then what happens when they get out? Like, what, what do they, what do they get out of the experience? Obviously they're meeting people. The lectures are coming in. They're seeing the people who are in this field. Um, and then how's it going to affect their, their job marketability or, um, maybe research direction that they want to get in? Yeah. Um, well, well, the, the right person. So we have, well, I'd say this is one of the things that maybe is most surprising about the program is the, the, the diversity of people in the program, mostly measured by their background or where they come from. Um, there's a lot of engineers, um, but there are also um, entrepreneurs. Um, there are kind of economic and policy folks, where they're, you know, where, um, there are um, also planetary scientists who, who see this as a field they want to work in. So, um, I guess I, I had thought we really would just be engineers and uh, planetary scientists, and I'm a little surprised by the number of, um, of uh, actually, so it should include law. There's a couple lawyers in the program. Uh, law, policy, economics, and um, pure entrepreneurs who are interested. Say pure because a fair number of our engineers are also entrepreneurs who started businesses around technology development. Um, and so the, the kind of range of people is, is broad. Um, our, our opinion of what it will take is that it's not, is that, that we need this kind of wide range of, of, of expertise to kind of make space resources work, make space mining work. Um, don't, I don't, there are technical challenges and there are legal challenges and there's, there's just, business structure challenges but I don't think there's any one place where it's clear like you know we fix this we solve this particular problem and it all works like there isn't one technical challenge there's many it is not just technical challenges it's also structural like how do you how do you finance a, a business mm -hmm. that you where you know you're going to um, you know where there's no predecessor as an example right. well we're like this other business, like this other mining firm, where they, but it's not, you know, it's, it's brand new stuff. So um, um, uh, there's a lot of opportunities for lots of different people. Now, where'd you say, oh, the other, other question is, where do you go or mm -hmm. afterwards? Um, well, I mentioned entrepreneurial uh, activity. A lot of the, there are a fair number of entrepreneurs in the program, they're basically creating their own businesses that will be doing this. Um, there, there are entrepreneurs such as TransAstra, or Joel Sersell and TransAstra, that could be hiring in the, uh, mm -hmm. at some point in the future. There, there are other, we've had a, you know, there's, there's other kind of established companies that um, have hired our graduates, uh, like Honeybee Robotics. They're, they're established as a um, spacecraft mechanisms company and a export, uh, uh, as a drilling well, as a mechanisms for um, space exploration company, drills for NASA, um, the rat tool on the Mars rovers, the, uh, uh, the development of scoops and robotic systems for 
for many different systems and NASA's developing. They've hired our graduates. We have, we have students in the program at Lockheed Martin, um, at, at other aerospace companies, where in a sense what they're doing is, is there's the anticipation that this will be a bigger field, and so they want to have a workforce that kind of is prepared. So um, there, there are a couple, you know, there, there are places to be employed, and I, I would say, you know, even if you're, I would say that even if you're going to go and work at a, a big aerospace firm, there's a sense of still being entrepreneurial. Like you're, mm. you're going to be doing this to sell yourself to a, to a major company or to start your own firm because you believe, you know, it'll be a value. And I think it will be in the next couple of years that, that they'll be hiring our, you know, graduates for this. In terms of, of the entrepreneurs, um, you know, it, to kind of get to the point where we have, um, you know, I, I think in the next couple years, we'll begin to see demonstrations of space resource uh, technologies in space. And um, the first practical delivery of a, of a product from space resources, I think can happen in the next 10 years. But between now and then another decade, and maybe it's a major component of our, every, everything we do in space. The, um, between now and then, kind of one thing is, is there are technologies we can develop today for looking forward to the future where it's a major part of how space is done that have value and uses today. Um, there's a lot of crossover between space resource technology and say robotics and AI of, of more complex systems operating in space that have, that can, multiple systems that can communicate to each other, we're with each other, with um, some way that interfaces, you know, to, to controllers on earth. Um, and um, other, you know, instrumentation, um, processing technology, um, propulsion technologies that are ready for, for space resources that could be, you know, um, that have a profitable business plan today before we really have all the resource components developed or the technologies developed to really take full advantage of, of resources of space. Okay, and this is a certificate program? Oh yeah, yeah so again, yeah. it's actually, there's three degrees. Um, there's a certificate, um, there's, there's a certificate, uh, a master's, it's non-thesis okay. master's, and, and there's a PhD. Hmm. Um, all can be um, uh, taken online. Um, so, and we're still kind of filling out the complete plan of all classes we will have. Hmm. Um, we have a number of classes. So we have, um, we have a, you know, the space resources fundamentals, a um, systems engineering for space resources, uh, projects, two project classes, um, kind of one and two project class, and then a number of electives. And in terms of fully online right now, an electives is a uh, space economics, space law. Uh, we're getting a space systems course uh, started next fall. Uh, we've have a module within a couple other courses that are online here at Mines in. Um, uh, manufacturing or advanced manufacturing offered online and a um, 
a life cycle analysis course mm. offered online. Um, and there, there are new classes we're developing. I'm forgetting about the planetary geology course as well. So um, there's a, and then there's a couple new ones planned uh, that we'll be adding um, at least one every semester. There's, um, this is sufficient. You can complete a mat the certificate and master's fully online now. Hmm. The um, PhD takes a few more credits and there's some issues about, you know, a, um, well, there, there is an online version of the PhD that we can offer if the, if the individual kind of has the right resources to be distant and not in, on all, online and complete the thesis, they can, hmm. could be admitted into an online PhD program. Um, but there's also on campus uh, PhD where primarily students working with us on funded research. Okay, well that sounds like fun. <laughs> it really does. Uh, where could people go to find out more about the program and, and maybe connect with you? Yeah, well our website, um, which is space.minds.edu. All and right. That is, is mine, M-I-N-E-S. Yeah. All right. Well, very cool. This has been a fascinating conversation. I'd like to have you back on in six months or something like that and, uh, and see what kind of new developments there are. I think that sure. would be very cool if you're up to it. Uh, so people can go check that out. My guest today has been Dr. Christopher Dreyer. He's the Associate Director of Engineering at and co-creator of the Center for Space Resources at the Colorado School of Mines. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Jason. It was fun.